Welcome to Zealots of the Gate, a podcast of Comment Magazine. I'm Matthew Kamink. I'm Shadi Hamid. Together we research politics, religion, and the future of democracy at Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. We are writing a book together. This podcast represents an informal space where we can talk about how to live with deep difference. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to a uh, special edition of Zealots at the Gate. My name is Matthew Kamink. This specific episode comes at your request. We received a lot of notes from friends and listeners and colleagues looking for uh, Shadi and I to have a conversation about what's happening with Israel-Palestine right now. It's political, it's religious, uh, social, and, and cultural implications, and how we can think about that together, disagree about that together, and uh, just dig into it. And so I'm, I'm grateful to Shadi for making some time um, to dig into this together. Um, for listeners who might be new to our discussion, Zealots at the Gate is a place where we talk about religion, politics, and deep difference. Shadi is a Muslim. I am a Christian. I'm a theologian. Shadi's um, a political scientist who specifically focuses on uh, Middle East and international relations issues. Um, Shadi is also now um, writing for the Washington Post, which we're really excited um, for Shadi on that. And Shadi has recently written a piece on uh, the situation in Gaza, which we'll be digging into here in the conversation. For those of you who are new, please make sure to subscribe um, on any podcast uh, platform, wherever you listen. You can leave us a review um, and you can join the conversation and ask us questions on Twitter by using the hashtag ZealotsPod or you can email us uh, zealots at comment.org. Um, with that stated, let's uh, jump into it. Uh, Shadi, this has been um, a big couple of weeks for the world and a big couple of weeks uh, for you in particular as um as a muslim as a political scientist as someone who's written on these things for many years but also as someone not simply as an intellectual but personally as a as a person of faith and um just a human being um it's been a big time i'm wondering if you could just provide a little bit of a context for you and and what these past couple of weeks has looked like for you and um some of the yeah. questions that have been coming up uh, thanks, Matt, for the for the intro. Um, it's been an intense period. I have also started a new job, as you alluded to earlier. Um, so now I have even, I suppose, one more identity. So I, I started as um, a columnist and member of the editorial board at the Washington Post. And yeah, on, on week, week two of my new job, everything everything broke out in the Middle East. And I was kind of hoping to maybe not focus as much on the Middle East going, uh, well, no one really seemed to care all that much. There was a kind of lull in the conversation. And I think a lot of Americans were expecting more of the same, more culture war stuff that was kind of inward looking and self-referential. And I think this is going to really scramble a lot of that. And we, I think we're already seeing some, some shifts in the political discourse. Um, so you know, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, um, I'm Muslim, Arab, political scientist, all these different um, identities, and I obviously, I obviously come at these conversations with my own 
um, starting premises. And I just don't, I don't think anyone can really be objective or even aspire to be objective. Um, there are, they're just fundamentally different narratives and each of us is going to prioritize or value some aspects of some narratives over others. It's just inevitable. I, um, I guess in the first couple of days, one thing that did stand out to me, and I think by now, after after Hamas's attacks on on Israel and um, its massacre of Israeli civilians, you know, and this has been said many many times, there was a contingent of the left, of progressive activists who did struggle to offer clear condemnations of what Hamas did their dislike or 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 even more than dislike of of Israel clouded their ability to you know speak with moral clarity on that there's no doubt about that um and but i have seen a shift as we've kind of entered into week number 2 of this Israel Hamas war what's been more striking to me and what i just tend to see more on any number of levels and not just people like, um, you know, posting on Twitter, but officials, U.S. officials, Israeli officials, especially Republicans in America, the right, just complete, a really striking unwillingness to see Palestinians as human beings, to speak of them as if they have any moral worth or dignity, um, blaming them for whatever's to come failing to make distinctions between Hamas and ordinary Palestinians caught in the crossfire. Um, someone like Lindsey Graham saying that Israel should quote-unquote level that place. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton saying that anything that happens in Gaza now is um, is on Hamas, as if Israel no longer has moral agency. And this question of moral agency is really, I think, important. And one of the things... Uh, this is one of the things I talked about in my um, in my debut um, Washington Post column, which we can include a link to in the show notes. The title was um, "In the Israeli-Palestinian Debate: You Might Be Wrong, Be Humble," or something to that effect. And um, I think that if I'm just looking at my own quote-unquote side, the progressive or pro-Palestinian side. One critique I make I make of that scene in in my column is I say like if you're a member of if members of marginalized groups don't have carte blanche to do anything anything they want you can't say that oh um, we have no moral agency because we're oppressed everyone retains the ability to make choices. So you can't say that Hamas was compelled to do this or that, you know, excusing or justifying in this manner because they're part of an oppressed group and to blame the oppressor and say that Israel is responsible for everything because it has the preponderance of power. That just, well, first of all, it's, it's very theologically problematic. Each of us as individuals is accountable in the eyes of God. The judgment will not be collective. It will be individual. So this idea that morality can be situational and that um, people who are weak don't, aren't, shouldn't be held to moral standards, it's also very patronizing. 
um, weak people can be moral. Um, and that's even understating it. I mean, one might even argue that weak people historically might even be more moral. Um, so I think I was very troubled by some of that. And I think it, it fits into some of the quote unquote woke activist discourse of basically removing responsibility from the oppressed, similar to how people sometimes talk about crime that, oh, um, this person committed criminal activity because of the structures of white supremacy. That is what we have to be focused on, as if the person didn't make a choice to commit a crime. But at the same time, um, Israel doesn't, can't, Israel has moral agency and responsibility. And I would say at this point in the conflict has more of it because it has the preponderance of power. It is it is the party that, that is now intensifying its bombardment and then, you know, launching um, launching ground invasion, uh, um, at least to one degree or another of, of Gazan territory. So Israel now has a real um, responsibility and we should expect nothing less than the minimize a serious and not just pro forma uh, minimization of civilian casualties and, and to take that as seriously as we possibly can. Anything does not go in warfare, which is also something that I think is very important in each of our faith traditions. Yeah, I, I mean, I think just on that, the the what, what strikes me here is the the empty the moral emptiness of being a victim, um, whether it be on the Jewish side or on the Palestinian side, or or really in any sort of ethical discussion that I am a victim of X, Y, or Z. Therefore, I can do this or that there's a sort of nihilism to it and i think you brought up in your, a quote in your post article on the palestinians being the victims of the victims yeah um so it's said yeah yeah edward said said that yeah. yeah and so i see constantly appeals on both sides to um to original sins or original original evils that they are responding to be it from the Jewish side, the the original sin of the Holocaust, um, or the original sin of Hamas's uh, attack just recently, that I am responding to these things. Um, similarly, on the Palestinian side, um, the original sin of 1948, or the original sin of um, the occupation, and then building a, a, an ethic of war off of an evil, right? That being the starting point. Exactly. So I just think that that's a particularly empty way to begin. It's really hard, actually, to have a dialogue or a debate with someone whose arguments are based purely off of a past evil. Yeah. Rather than some kind of moral code that goes beyond that. Yeah. I mean, competitive victimization, if one wants to call it that, I think is very dangerous in these circumstances. You know, I tend to um, find aspects of the, the Palestinian narrative more compelling, but I... I also, if I, you know, when I do try to, you know, put my, um, what is that expression? My feet in the shoes, whatever shoes, uh, I can't actually, whatever that is. But, um, you know, having spent time in Israel and interviewed, um, Israeli officials and really tried to engage with that, with wildly different perspectives, including from settlers, um, had a number of meetings with set, um, settlers last time I was in Israel in 2019 and um there is a there is a, com a compelling coherent pro-israel 
narrative and to kind of dismiss it if you're if you're coming from a pro-palestinian perspective and you dismiss that out of hand that they they have nothing compelling on their side or no legitimate grievances it just doesn't it's a very it's a very blinkered view of a of a very complex conflict now complexity doesn't mean there can't be moral consistency and it doesn't mean that we can't be morally outraged at injustice for example i think there should be moral outrage about uh, what is now a more than 50-year Israeli occupation of Palestinian territory. I find that to be outrageous. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but uh, there is a broader context that one has to really dive into, and it is worth, I think, suspending, for, at least for a moment, some of our own very strongly held convictions and to make a good-faith effort to at least try to comprehend the other side's narrative, the other side's historical memory, the other side's perception of original sins. And I think that's been a theme of Zealots at the Gate, is there has to be a presumptive generosity there, even with people who we might consider to be our adversaries or opponents. And that's very hard to do, I think, but it must, I think it must be done. So you use the term in your article, both sides-ism. Mm. And I wonder if you could provide our listeners with a little bit of background on what that, what that, how that term works uh, today, and what its, um, what its benefits and perhaps its its uh, detractions or its weaknesses are. What is both sidesism? Yeah, right after. So I think it was maybe um, the day after Hamas, uh, you know, launched its attacks um, on Israel. Um, I tweeted something like. Uh, we, I think it was, we can and must condemn Hamas's heinous acts against Israeli civilians while refusing to forget that Israel has been a perpetrator of a brutal occupation of the Palestinians. I think what you said there was, it must be possible to say two things at once. Yeah, <laughs> is, yeah, that's the part the before, core, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It should be possible to, yeah, like it, it doesn't, one kind of suffering should negate another. It is possible um to speak even in one sentence about um quote unquote both sides and in this case in the israeli-palestinian conflict there are actually both sides insofar as there are two primary uh, parties to the conflict so at a very basic level we should be looking at perspectives on on both sides but obviously some people I think it is difficult to talk about atrocities after the fact. So because it, Hamas's targeting of innocent civilians was just so brutal and grisly and bloody, and you know many of us saw those you know very disturbing images, there is an interesting and I think challenging question of what is the appropriate way to talk about those atrocities? Because at, at some level, you want to make sure you're focused on the immediate victims, the people who were killed by Hamas. But at the same time, as analysts and observers, like we also we also have to think about what what comes next, what the Israeli response will be. How do we analyze what's going on? How did Gaza become this place that has just been you know festering? Um, uh, you know, uh, for for such a long time without much international attention, there's all these different angles to the broader conflict. So when is it appropriate to actually bring those up and talk about the broader context? Because I think 
one of the concerns is that if you do talk about the broader context, you're not focusing on the immediate victims and and what they're going through. And I think it's somewhat similar to how I think some of the tensions many of us felt post 9-11 is 9-11 happens to, um, and then but when is it appropriate to start talking about why the attacks might have happened or what led to them? Obviously, in the end, everyone started talking about that. But should you wait? Is there a kind of sensitivity period? But part of the issue with 9-11 is that you can't wait too long to talk about the broader context when U.S. policy is changing rapidly and civil rights abuses are happening. The Patriot Act was passed. Um, America gets on a war footing almost immediately. So... You know, you have to be able to engage with those broader questions. So I think that there's that's the balancing act that becomes very challenging. And what I wanted to say is that, um, you know, there is a way to do this and to talk about this with moral consistency and moral clarity. And that means that we can't look at one thing to the exclusion of the other. So but but to be clear, you're not advocating that we should be Switzerland, that we should just kind of stay out of it and say, well, it's complicated. Both sides are at fault. So no, I have strong views. How might we actually take a side, um, but do so with a, um, a moral awareness of uh, the fault within our own and the value of the other, I think might be the core question. Because, you know, you're wanting to name in that in that post that, um, there's real evil on both sides. And yet, um, you also do want to take a side, you know, owning the Palestinian cause. So talk about that challenge. So I do think what some folks on the left say about power differentials is important. I mean, I don't, as longtime listeners will know, I don't love the language of marginalized groups and kind of reifying our marginalization as minorities in America. I think that can be destructive if we kind of take it too far. But at the same time, power differentials matter. Um, and the fact that Isra the Israeli military and the Biden administration have the preponderance of power, I mean, mo more so the Israeli military, but in the end, the U.S. is, um, is the primary military patron of Israel, has a lot of influence with what Israeli officials do, how far they might go in terms of, um, you know, uh, you know, bombings in Gaza and, and actually going in on the ground. So I think there's something weird and like morally distasteful to me that you see a lot of pro-Israel voices obsessing over campus activists and saying, oh, my God, look at these student groups that couldn't condemn Hamas. Yeah, it's really bad what some of these student groups said or failed to say. And, you know, that deserves some attention. But we're in the middle of a war, and those college students are relatively fringe. They have no influence on American policy. Um, no one who actually controls, like, a, a serious military is, like, listening to their advice. So there's just something very odd to me about how we're, it's, um, if you'll forgive the term, punching down. Yeah, sometimes 
you want to punch up a little bit. You want to look more closely at those who actually have the most power. Yeah. Because that's what's ultimately going to affect the most lives. So ultimately, Israel is the more powerful party here. It has one of the most um, you know, advanced um, militaries in the world. Um, it's a very successful country. No, no, I, I, I get that. I think power is an important aspect uh, of, of these sorts of things. But I think not, I think one of the tempting things is, is neutrality um, in these kinds of situations for Americans in particular is simply to say, well, it's, it's a messed up region. It's complicated. I have other things to do with my life. I'm not going to care about this. Yeah, and I would advise against that. And I, as I have been saying, I think that if at some basic level we have to address um, the the failure to to establish a Palestinian state, the fact that this conflict has been left to fester, the fa- the fact that Gaza has been under a land, air, and sea blockade since 2007 with relatively little international attention. It just became this thing that people, oh, that's unfortunate what the Gazans are going through, but what can we do? Let's just kind of throw up our hands. Um, People weren't paying attention to how a lot of, um, you know, a lot of terrible impulses were building and that while everyone was looking away, Hamas was preparing this assault even the Israelis were caught off guard. This is a danger of not paying attention to the Middle East, not caring, thinking that we can pivot to Asia and just completely give up any sense of having a more moral and just policy in the Middle East. And the Middle it's not just the Israeli Palestinian conflict. The whole Middle Eastern the whole Middle Eastern order is one that has one that is very prone to outbreaks of extremism, violence, terrorism. We've really been telling the same story since 9-11, that at some basic level you have to address some of the quote-unquote root causes that contribute to terrorism. That was, I think, one of the main lessons of 9-11, and it's worth noting that was actually at the heart of as much as you know, people might have um, hated the Bush administration, even the Bush administration, with all of its folly, came to this conclusion. The whole premise behind the freedom agenda was to say that the only way to fight terrorism in the long run is by addressing these contributing factors, and that if people don't have the ability to express their grievances through legitimate political means— they're more likely to resort to violence. You have to try to channel people's anger and even their hatred in a constructive political process. If there isn't a constructive political process, if people don't see any way out, then terrorists are going to feed on that kind of hopelessness. And they're going to be um, more likely to resort to to brutal acts themselves. This is just it's 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 almost so obvious that I feel sort of weird talking about it. But I also realize that it is controversial to say that in some quarters because just talking about root causes sometimes people can see that as absolving people. Again, it goes back to what we were saying. If we talk so much about the structure and the context, are we actually giving pe- individuals a pass? But we're not. 
Yeah. So let's, let's talk just a little bit about how our faith and, and theological convictions intersect with all of this. Um, I am curious, you know, watching your fellow Muslims respond to this event and think as they, they articulate themselves theologically, um, as what God might will or want in this situation. I'm curious of your reflections on, um, on how your fellow Muslims are are behaving and speaking and, and talking right now, and maybe how your own personal faith is informing the way, the unique way that you're approaching this. You're, you're trying to add something to public discourse in America. And you, you've said, um, it's not Islamic the way we're behaving. So what, what would be an Islamic way to respond to this? Uh, and before you do, and, and, and I'm happy to you know, reflect a little bit on my own Christian faith and how my, my fellow Christians are behaving themselves right now. But uh, before you do, I, I do think it's important to note that we do not have a citizen of Israel or a Jewish person uh, as part of this conversation. And I would love uh, in the future to um, include that voice uh, as, we, as we move forward. So we might think about together about um, a voice that we might include in the future. But yeah, Shadi, can you talk just a little bit about what you're seeing in, quote unquote, the Muslim world, how they're thinking theologically or articulating themselves theologically about this, and maybe your how your own faith shows up in, in, in your posture in response to this? Yeah, I think I wouldn't want to overstate how common this is, but I think there's no avoiding that in in some parts of the the pro Palestinian movement and among Muslim you know among Muslims more broadly, especially in the Middle East, because it's so visceral, just how much this conflict has played a role in historical memory and a sense of injustice from an Arab perspective. That I think a knee jerk reaction that I often see is to always to just obsess over. Israel and to not be and and how that distracts from an ability to call out um, your you know your own quote unquote side. Now I don't think Hamas is not any one side. It's really worth noting Hamas claims to speak on behalf of Muslims. It it claims to have you know a broad popular support, um, and of course that's going to be their narrative, but. Um, you know the argument that Ham Hamas makes. First of all, they, for a long time, have justified targeting innocent civilians, suicide bombings in the two thousands in particular. In that, there is no such thing as an Israeli civilian. That's just a made up. Like none of these ideas don't really have any basis in the Islamic tradition. There's combatants and there's non-combatants. This idea that people can be held responsible for what their government does um, is a kind of collective punishment. It's saying that individuals are responsible for the collective, which is a fundamentally un-Islamic idea, because in, in judgment, in the eyes of God, you are only responsible for your own sins as an individual. No one sins, no one else's sins can be put onto you. That goes against the whole moral system of Islam. And so that's, that's one thing that I, I feel very strongly about. And also just the, as I mentioned earlier, the situational ethics or situational morality that if you're oppressed, 
you can then justify terrible things. The desperate, and, but there's also a secular version of this. Desperate times call for desperate measures. You suspend the rules of war because your enemy is so evil. There's always a temptation to do this. But it's worth remembering that in the founding of Islam, um, in the early days of the, the Muslim community, Prophet Muhammad and, and his followers were fighting for their very survival. There was, there was a very proximate risk of annihilation. Um, and that was, you know, one of the worst periods in Islamic history. And yet the prophet didn't, uh, the prophet and, and his supporters never said, oh, well, now we can just, you know, kill everyone. Now we can target non-combatants. And there were clear rules of engagement that, um, that Prophet Muhammad did take uh, quite seriously. Um, and so I, I just think that if, if, it's good, if it's good enough for the Prophet Muhammad, it's good enough for you in Palestine, as difficult as your situation might be. Um, you can't target children, women. You, you, know, you, can't, um, you can't lose your morality if, if you claim to be fighting an injustice, because we all know how that ends up. Um, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. These are very basic things that I think we derive either directly or indirectly from our, from our faiths, the golden rule, just because someone did something terrible to you. Again, this is what Hamas says. It says, well, sometimes they don't even, oftentimes they don't make religious arguments. They're saying, well, look what Israel does to us. That is not a theologically or morally coherent argument. That's like schoolhouse talk, school, school playground talk, um, you know. So I think the golden rule, like you know, or two wrongs don't make a right. There is like some basic wisdom there that some of these groups seem completely unable to follow. Um, but but yeah, if I yeah, I'd be curious. And you know, Matt, we haven't really had a chance to talk about this. I have been getting some comments from folks. S- you know, saying that they're disappointed to see how some Christian leaders have in America have talked about Palestinians or not having as much empathy for what the suffering of Palestinians and that sort of thing. Um, actually, but there's so many different directions we can go from your perspective, and we've never really talked all that much about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict more broadly. But how do you, how do you come at this as a as a Christian? How are you trying to make sense of what's going on, and does what I just said kind of resonate from a Christian perspective? Right, right. Well, I mean, so the the Christian response to the um, Israel Palestine conflict over the last seventy five years has been, you know, predictably complex. So you have um, Christian Zionism, which um, in its most extreme sides can basically see no wrong um, for the people of Israel and just a total blind support that is theologically and spiritually charged often with a sort of eschatological or end times type energy that um, we support Israel because God supports Israel and in supporting Israel, we will usher in um a new age in which Jesus will return. And, um, it's not, it's not hard to imagine what the political consequences are for that kind of a theological commitment. 
On the other side, on the, on the Christian, so that might be the Christian right um, on Israel-Palestine. And then on the, the Christian left, you can kind of have a, um, a sort of spiritual, um, a sort of anthropological flatness. What I mean by that is um, there's nothing special about Judaism. There's nothing special about Jews. Um, they're just human beings like everyone else. And, um, God loves all people. And so, um, there, there should be no state of Israel. Um, the Palestinians should inhabit that land. And, um, because it was, it was theirs first. Um, and so those on the, the Christian that maybe the far Christian left would just have no real, uh, stake in the state of Israel politically or theologically, um, where I sit, <laughs> you know, on that spectrum, uh, you know, I, I hate being described as a moderate. I, I, I always kind of bristle at that, <laughs> but I do feel compelled genuinely, um, by both sides in that I, um, I 100% want to, affirm the humanity and the deep value of Palestinian Christians and of their placeness on that land and their right to that land. However, I also theologically as a Christian, I believe that the Jewish people are, are treasured, um, are treasured by God and, um, that they matter, uh, deeply and that, um, they somehow mysteriously have, um, a connection to that land and that, and that's valued. Um, and so I really do, um, come at this theologically, um, valuing both sides and wanting, um, wanting real justice and reconciliation between, um, both sides. But I think one of the reasons why I've never talked with you about Israel, Palestine is, is genuinely We've really never my... talked about it. We've never talked about Israel Palestine. Wow. You and First I we've time never here. talked about it. Is is a genuine paral moral paralysis that I experience um around this particular issue. And uh it's a little bit embarrassing for me as a Christian ethicist and a political theologian that I don't have the kind of moral clarity on this issue that I would love to have, you know, to be honest with you. So I, I am, it's very easy for me to criticize Christian Zionism <laughs> and it's very easy for me to criticize a sort of blind, woke Palestinianism, you know, um, those are the simple things. I I'm more interested in the complex, you know, theopolitical problem of what do you do, um, with the reality of what you have there. Yeah. You can ask me more questions about it, but that's that's the short an answer of where I am. No, that's great. And what would you say about the place or role of Palestinian Christians in the Christian imagination? Because it seems that American Christians often forget that many Palestinians are Christian, yeah, and that there is a you know long-standing, strong Palestinian Christian community. And often I hear a kind of indignation, like. How come no one pays attention to us? We exist too. And why don't our Christian co-religionists seem to value our perspectives? Right. 
Uh, a couple things. One is, um, I think it's terribly sad that American Christians do not see, acknowledge, or listen to Palestinian Christians, and that they do not allow Palestinian Christians to teach them something um, about this situation. Um, I was just sent, uh, you know, three different Palestinian pastors and ethicists who are working on this issue. And I thought, oh, I'll go hop on Twitter and follow them. And I, I imagined, oh, they will have thousands and thousands of followers and everyone will be engaging with them and listening to them. And, and they had like 800 followers, 1200, like no one's listening to these, you know, Palestinian Christian brothers and sisters and the, you know, the careful reflections that they have. So, um, yeah, I think that is a tragedy. Um, however, I have heard, um, it's some people would argue that, oh, Christians should be on the side of Palestinians, uh, because there's, there's fellow Christians there you know, sort of this, they, they are, they are our brothers, but I, I don't think that's quite how Christian morality works that, that we sort of, oh, we're going to value the West bank more than Gaza because there's more Christians there. Um, in terms of Christian political ethics, we value the West bank because there's human beings there. Um, and we value Gaza because there's human beings there. It, it shouldn't matter more to us because the church is larger or smaller there. Yeah, yeah. And what about, you know, obviously, I don't think this is the predominant strand in American Christianity today. And we've talked about this in previous episodes, that there's much more of a John Wayne kind of Christianity, especially among evangelicals, which is maybe less less focused on the weak and the most destitute and the most poor. But obviously, at least, um, you know, when I think about Christianity, I do think about a religion that very much identifies with the weakest of the weak and pays close attention to the, the struggles of the weak. Um, and um, again, kind of obvious, but the fact that Palestinians are on the other side of the power differential, um, again, we're not saying that that allows like, um, you know, getting rid of standard morality, but the fact that, um, you know, in a David Goliath kind of situation, I guess the Palestinians would be more in the place of David in, in terms of uh, lack of power and fighting, you know, of of contending with a much stronger force. I mean, how how do you view the the question of weakness uh, and morality? Well, I have to say it's it's morally embarrassing to hear, and I would hope that the Christians who are listening to this um, feel this moral embarrassment. It's morally morally embarrassing to hear a Muslim say to me, "I thought Christianity cared about weak people." <laughs> Right? Because that's, that is, it's supposed to be the core of what the Christian faith is about. Um, so then the next question is why don't um, American Christians care about these clearly weak 
um, Palestinian people? And the answer, of course, is complicated. A big part of it is that evangelical Christianity has been deeply influenced by Christian Zionism, which I think was more popular amongst evangelical Christianity in the 1970s, 80s. Hmm. Like you don't really hear a lot of younger evangelical pastors banging the drum of Zionism huh. uh, like you would have 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, but it's still kind of in our, it's still kind of in our blood. It's still kind of in the water we drink of this, this deep concern for just, I, th I would, I would say it's more of a sort of general concern for Israel um, as opposed to maybe 20, 30 years ago when evangelicals were writing lots of books about being intense Zionists. Interesting. Um, it's more of just sort of a vague Zionism, <laughs> if you will. But yeah, there is um, there is a lack of concern for the weak. I, you know, I was listening to your discussion uh, with Demir and Wisdom of Crowds the other the other day, and I couldn't help but think of this book by Reinhold Niebuhr, a sort of core book on Christian theology and international relations, which is Moral Man and Immoral Society. Um, which, you know, frankly, I would love to talk with you and Demir sometime about that book. That'd be fun. It's a core book on realism. And um, that was written 100 years ago now. Um, but one of his one of his core arguments is that you might have a lot of moral individuals, like if you were to drop individual evangelical Christians into Palestine, and you walk them around, they might, they might be individually impacted by the plight of Palestinians. Yeah. Um, they might be touched by that. They might make friendships with, you know, little Palestinian kids and play soccer. And it would be like this morally momentous, ex you know, experience for them. But what not, what Reinhold Niebuhr argues is that when you, when you gather these individual moral people or good people together into a collective unit, they tend to get selfish really quickly. They tend to get fearful. They tend to get vengeful when you collectivize them, that communities tend to lose their, their moral vision mm. when blame can be diffuse. So essentially I can, I can ask the Israeli army to do really intense things, um, as a nation and not bear that responsibility. Um, whereas if I had to do it myself, I wouldn't want to. And so that's, that's Niebuhr's case. And I think it's particularly, you know, helpful in thinking about the ways in which Christians can be hypocritical when they start acting politically as a group. Whereas individually you would, you'd get to know a, a regular evangelical Christian and you'd be thinking, you know, they could never support something so horrible. That's a fascinating point because it's sort of the opposite of the wisdom of crowds. <laughs> it is absolutely the opposite, right? Is that groups are morally sus suspect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely well, That is. seems to be a problem. <laughs> it's not an easy one to solve. Like, I'm, you know, this is maybe not the best analogy, but I'm, I'm also reminded of the kind of some of the moral debates around when executions some there used to be a method of a firing squad um you know into the 20th century even here in the US and i guess that um the that way if you have 
uh, if you have a larger firing squad, because you obviously don't need like 10 or 15 shooters to kill um, one person, is that way it sort of distributes moral responsibility away from any one person that there isn't one person who did the killing. It was the group that did the killing that just came to mind. Don't know how relevant it is, but I think there are some really interesting sort of, you know, moral questions around how the individual, you know, moves from his own individual responsibility to a collective. And, and um, unfortunately, with very large populations and powerful states, you know, um, like when we talk about the U.S. doing something, we're talking about the sum total of hundreds of thousands of people who are in the bureaucracy or the national security apparatus. So the U.S., when it does terrible things abroad or commits various injustices, it's not a person doing it. It's a country. And I think that, um, you know, raises some interesting questions about moral, you know, moral culpability and, um, you know, what does it mean to condemn a country um, versus condemning individual officials or condemning the product of policy decisions that are taken on the individual level? Like what is policy but, but the, the sum total of a very large number of individual decisions and impulses that are all sort of collected as some kind of final product. Yeah. And you know what, one other thing I wanted to mention on the, on the Christian side of ethics here is um, you have a number of different ethical traditions that would argue that, um, as you said, Christians should care, not, not simply care, um, about the weak, but actually you know, offer a, a preferential option or a, um, a leaning towards those who are on the weaker side of things. Um, that an understanding that Jesus, Jesus identifies with the weak. Um, and in, you know, the gospel, Matthew 25, that, you know, when you care for the weak, you care for me. Mm. Now, the way that this can be twisted in Christian theology and ethics is to say the weak or the marginalized person is Jesus. Ah. And so then what you do is you sort of, you, you, um, take the oppressed person and you make them an idol or you, you make them absolutely Jesus. So then the Palestinian can do no wrong because God is absolutely with the Palestinians, right? So, there's a there's a, a key moral distinction here for Christians that they need to be able to say that Jesus is with the Palestinians, and so I need to be with them. But you don't want to say Jesus is the Palestinians, and the Palestinians can do no wrong. Yeah, and that's a tricky, nuanced distinction that can be that can be difficult for those who had developed something called uh, we call it uh, liberation theology. I was just about in, to ask you. Yeah. yeah. Um... But is there something more inherent? Are the weak inherently more moral? If we think about the weak as a large collective group throughout history, is there something about their weakness that imparts upon them a kind of special closeness to God on average? Like, to what extent can we say that that's sort of intrinsic to weakness? Uh, well, I, I would personally say no, not at all. And it's not <clears throat> the value of 
the weak or the marginalized within God's moral economy is not because they're so good. It's not because they're so humble. It's because of their value to me is because I know God loves them. Uh, it's not that I, I don't have to romanticize the poor or the marginalized. I don't have to um, say they can do no wrong or anything like that. But it, my concern from them comes from my knowledge that uh, God cares about them and God is concerned for them and that, that Jesus identifies with them. Not that they are Jesus or they are God. Yeah. And, and what would you make of the biblical verses? I forget they're the famous one about, um, the rich, what is it? The rich passing into heaven is like a needle. I just totally making this up now, but it's something, there's some, yes. something to that effect that there's something about those who are wealthy or have a lot of material success that actually creates a detachment from God or brings them further away from him. Obviously the prosperity gospel is, is I suppose the opposite of this. So there are very conflicting Christian <laughs> currents on this. And Calvinists also have interesting views about the, the elect and to what extent God displays his favor towards the believer. Yeah. yeah I guess there's a lot there that would probably require yeah. a lot so, of exposition. So, yeah, so, so let's stick with the first part. The first part is that money, power, and privilege um, in the Christian imagination is not evil in itself, but it makes for a life that is morally dangerous and difficult. So it's not, it is not evil to have money, power, or privilege, responsibility. Those, those things aren't evil. Um, but the more that you amass, um, the more difficult your life will be morally speaking, um, and the more dangerous. So, um, that is something that should be power, privilege, money should be held with, uh, a level of fear and trembling, um, to, to put it short. We, we should have an episode on money sometime. That'd be, yeah. that'd be a fun one to talk about. That would be the last thing I, I, hopefully this is the last thing I wanted to say about Christianity on this thing is, you know, with Israel, Gaza, um, if you're if you're a Christian pacifist, right, the, the response is 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 relatively relatively simple, though costly, of what Christian faithfulness looks like in this. What would that answer be? Just to be, just to share that with listeners, what is the Christian pacifist position? Well, you know, I think there's a number of different traditions within it. One is just total um, passivity, just allowing whatever to happen happens. Another is nonviolent resistance where Christians would, um, would stand in between, um, and would block, um, violent action with their bodies and would willingly sacrifice. I saw that there's a, a Christian pastor there in Israel who's offering himself, um, to Hamas, um, in exchange for um, hostages right now. Whoa. And that's, of course, a very, there's, a, that's a very Christ-like sort of response, right? To offer yourself as a sacrifice. Um, so, 
so that's the sort of pacifist um, or peacemaking, nonviolent, resistant response um, that is very com very costly and very complicated. The other tradition is the Christian just war tradition, um, which I think, you know, it basically says, you know, if you're going to go to war, it has to be under these circumstances and it has to be in this sort of way. And you have to conduct yourself, you know, in, in, an, in an honorable way. And there's all these sort of ethical constraints on this. Um, but it's very complicated with this particular issue because of the way Hamas is behaving. Um, you know, just war, you know, traditionally has been something where like my army meets your army out on a field and this is how we're going to conduct, um, this is how we're going to conduct that battle in a way that's just fair and right. Um, but when Hamas hides amongst civilians and uses them, um, and is, is willing to destroy you in, in any way imaginable, um, it's very difficult to um, conduct a battle in terms of just war ethics. So I'm just saying this particular circumstance sort of highlights um, a need for Christian ethical reflection on, on warfare in general. Well, that's a good note to end on, a morally complex note. Um, and it does make me think at some point, well, maybe this would be challenging to do well, like an episode on just war theory. That could be interesting in the future. But, um, you know, thanks, Matt, for kind of prompting this conversation. And I hope I hope listeners will benefit. Yeah, well, this is all to say, you know, if you want to if you want to continue to learn about this, I do, you know, want to encourage you to follow um, follow Shaddy on Twitter and, and his writings now at The Washington Post um, and uh, continue to pray friends and brothers and sisters this is um this is a, a particularly brutal conflict for those in that 50 square mile area but i would say that in the weeks and months ahead there is a real concern that this conflict could spread um to other countries around the middle east um and has implications for a larger world and so please do pray if you are the praying sort amen Friends, thank you for listening to Zealots of the Gate. If you like what you've heard, um, please check out our podcast, Intellectual Seedbed. We are run by Comment Magazine. You can go to comment.org where you'll find lots of illuminating essays on politics, culture, and faith. Um, once again, we want to hear from you, so you can connect with us at Twitter. Um, find Shadi at Shadi Hamid and me at Matthew Kamink. You can write to us as well over email, zealots at comment.org. And you can expect a sincere and thoughtful exchange. Our thanks as well to our sponsor, uh, Fuller Seminary, the Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. That's where Shadi and I serve as scholars. Um, so, yeah, Zealots of the Gate is hosted by Comet Magazine, produced by Ali Crummy, audience strategy by Matt Crummy, and editorial direction by Ann Snyder. Thank you so much for joining us. Finally, I'm Matthew Kamek. And I'm Shadi Hamid. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>